Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. This week on the podcast, five storytellers share their true personal stories on the theme, Come As You Are. These stories were live streamed into the living rooms of 390 people on September 16th, 2020. Big thanks to our title sponsor, The Good Food Store, and thanks to our enduring sponsors, CabinetParts.com and Blackfoot Communications. Special thanks to our champion sponsor, True Food Missoula. Know this, Tell Us Something stories sometimes have adult themes. Storytellers sometimes use adult language. This episode features a couple of stories like that, including some profanity use. Sensitive listeners, please be aware. Our first storyteller is Kelly Grandone, whose creative father fashioned some homemade skis as a Christmas gift when times were tough at the Grandone household. So strap on the skis and settle in for a story Kelly calls The Gift. When I was eight years old, my older sister Jamie and I decided that we wanted to ask Santa for cross-country skis for Christmas. We had planned, we had plotted, we had looked for special skis in catalogs, and we knew that it was kind of a big deal. This was a big gift, Um, but Santa was the kind of guy who we could ask a big gift from. In some houses, kids could ask for anything that they wanted from Santa and they could get it. We knew Santa had limitations in our house and we knew that he was giving presents to, you know, everybody in the whole world. So we didn't want to ask too much, but we had been really good this year and this was our best shot. So we went to our parents and told them of our plan that we were going to ask Santa for cross-country skis. And they said, wow, that's a really big, it's a really big gift, guys. Have you been really good this year? Yes, we assured them. We had been great. We were, this was our best, a best time to ask for this. They said, you might want to come up with a backup gift just in case, because you never know, maybe Santa won't be able to handle that kind of a gift. So we said, okay, that's a good idea. I came up with a pink and purple parka. So if Santa couldn't give us cross-country skis, a pink and purple parka was going to be a really good second choice. It was a very long wait to Christmas. That season took forever. And Jamie and I were so excited when Christmas Eve rolled around. And on Christmas Eve, we go to my aunt's house. And she has a very small home with a very hot stove and a thousand people in the room. And we're all really loud and eating and just having a great time. Presents aren't a big deal on Christmas Eve. It's not the biggest part of Christmas Eve. So we usually get a little something from our grandparents and a little something from mom and dad. And then we start cleaning up all the garbage and go play basketball in the garage. Well, just as we were cleaning up, my dad pulls Jamie and me aside and says, girls, guess what? Santa came early. And Jamie and I were so excited. We had never heard of Santa coming early. And so we knew this must be the year. If he's gonna come early, we totally got cross country skis. We come up to the tree and out from behind the tree, my dad pulls two long slender packages. Now, To my knowledge, Santa had never wrapped our Christmas gifts in black plastic garbage bags and duct tape before, but we were going to give him a pass. It was Christmas Eve. He was delivering presents to the whole world, so it was what what was inside that counted anyway, so it really didn't matter that the outside looked horrible. We each got one of these packages, and we struggled with it for a while, trying to break in with all the duct tape until one of our relatives had pity on us and got out a pocket knife and tore into the bags and we ripped off the plastic to reveal a very odd looking set of cross-country skis. It wasn't quite what we had expected, but it was still cross-country skis. The first thing that hit me was the smell. Mine had been spray painted bright red. And my sisters were spray painted bright blue. And 
it was very possible that the spray paint had not completely dried yet. It was a very strong smell that filled the small room. These skis were cut out of rough lumber. They were made of plywood and they were cut to a point at the top as skis of the time were. In order to make the typical curves of the front of the skis, there was a sheetrock screw drilled directly into the tip of the toe and a rusty wire wrapped around it and pulled tight to create that curve and another sheetrock screw drilled directly into the top of the ski. And the sheetrock screws came out the back of, out the bottom of the skis about a quarter of an inch. So they were very spiky, which is not something that skis probably should be. Down the body of the ski, there was an old pair of tennis shoes with two sheetrock screws screwed directly into the toes so that the back would flip-flop just the way cross-country skis do. We also had poles, one by one inch pieces of boards with duct tape wrapped around the handle a hundred times so you had a grip. We also had shoelaces that were stapled into the top of those pieces and made a little loop so those ski straps wouldn't would uh, keep our ski poles with us. And the pole baskets on the bottom were made of butter tub lids that had also been duct taped to the bottom of the poles. So it had everything that um, these cross-country skis should have. It looked like they might work, except for maybe the screws sticking out of the back. And I just kept looking at the shoes. The shoes kept telling me a little something. And I looked at my sister, and she was going wild. She was jumping up and down, and she was so excited, and she was squealing. And I was like at these skis going, did we get the same thing? Because this is not the level of craftsmanship that I have come to expect from Santa. Um, he little, little, dropped the ball a little bit this year. And I looked back down at those shoes and a wave of realization came over me and it hit me in my stomach like a gut punch. This was not Santa's handiwork. This was the handiwork of my father. And I looked over at my dad and he was looking at me like, do you love it? And I had no reaction. I had no idea what to do. I just froze. And I looked and I could see all of my family standing around waiting for me to react. And that tiny room got smaller and I could feel the heat rising in my neck and my ears started to burn and a lump began to form in my throat the size of my fist. And so I set the skis down and I turned and walked out of the room and I went out the front door and sat on the front porch and started to cry. I had not felt disappointment to that level before. And not only disappointment in the gift, because it wasn't what I was expecting, but because I was disappointed in the gift, it felt like I was disappointed in my dad. And I really wasn't. My dad was the best. And I just felt like the worst kid in the world, so ungrateful. The shoes, I kept looking at those shoes. There was a fatal flaw with those shoes and it couldn't be fixed. I just knew it. So I cried. A minute or so later, my dad comes out and he sits down next to me and he wraps his arm around me and says, hey, Kel, what's the matter? Don't you like the skis? And I said, yes, dad, I love the skis. I just, they won't work. I can't use them. And he said, really? Well, what's wrong with them? The shoes, they don't fit. I grew out of them last year. I can't even fit my feet into them. There's no way I can use them. And he said, is that all? Yes, 
I said, you know, we could just take those shoes out. I could just unscrew those shoes and we can find another old pair of Jamie's shoes and we'll just replace them with something bigger. And it had not occurred to me that this could be fixed so easily. So I thought, well, that would be okay. I mean, they were homemade skis. My dad had made them just for me. That was pretty cool. And if I could fit into the shoes, I could make them work. So it was better. And my dad, at that point, my dad had given, given me a hug and tried to make me feel better. And my sister came out of the door and she stuffed her giant feet into shoes that were way too small for her too. And she started to try to scoot across the lawn in these, in these skis that were effectively ice cleats with all of the screws sticking out of the bottom. And he said, how, is the, how are those skis working, Jamie? And she said, well, they're not very slippery, Dad. I can't really move around in them. And he said, Dad, don't worry about it. We'll wax them up. I've got some wax. We'll wax them up tomorrow. We'll, we'll get them shined up, and you'll be sliding around in no time. So with a little bit of wax and a different pair of shoes, we had a great pair of cross-country skis, both Jamie and I. And Christmas was saved, and I hadn't ruined it. So the next morning was Christmas morning, and it was a beautiful sunny day, and the sun was shining, and the snow was sparkling, and we opened presents, and we ate cinnamon buns, and under the tree in a great big box was my backup gift, that pink and purple parka, and it was beautiful. It fit me great. I couldn't wait to try out my new skis with a different set of shoes. And as we were kind of cleaning up Christmas, my dad pulls out a couple more presents from behind the couch. And he said, almost forgot these. And he handed one to Jamie and he handed one to me. And they were long, slender, rectangular boxes wrapped in shiny Christmas wrapping paper. And Jamie and I tore into those and inside the box was the most beautiful pair of cross-country skis I had ever seen. Mine were shiny and white with red and blue details on them. They had metal and plastic bindings that clipped and unclipped. They were so professional. We had ski poles that matched. It was amazing. And along with that set of skis, came beautiful leather fur-lined cross-country ski boots that clipped into the bindings. And as I slipped my feet into those beautiful boots and I started to lace them up, my dad came up behind me and he wrapped his arm around me and said, hey, Kel, how do those shoes fit? And I said, great, Dad. They fit great. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Kelly Grandone was born and raised in Polson, Montana, and now calls Great Falls home. She is a mother to four wonderful, creative children and has been married to her husband, Ryan, for 21 years. Kelly teaches seventh grade art in the Great Falls Public Schools and has been teaching art for the last 10 years. In her spare time, Kelly loves to read, draw, paint, travel, and spend time with her family enjoying Montana's outdoors. Our next storyteller is Jen Serta, who, after years of hating the tattoo on her foot, endeavors to have it covered up with a more meaningful piece of artwork. Sensitive listeners, please be aware that Jen's story acknowledges sexual trauma. Jen calls her story, How to Love This World. It inevitably happens every summer. On a hike, floating the river at a barbecue in someone's backyard, in line at the grocery store, someone will glance down at my Chaco-clad feet and say the words I dread. Hey, what's your tattoo of? I fucking hate it when people ask me this question. Outwardly, I usually try to make a joke and deflect the attention, but 
inside, I am flooded with guilt and shame. Nine years ago, I was 24 when I decided to get my first tattoo. I was leaving Montana in what I thought would be a permanent move, and I just felt this desperate need to somehow take with me a reminder of what I had felt here. Montana had been this place that I had felt most alive, most fully myself for the first time in my life. And I was so afraid to lose that feeling. So I made an appointment at a local tattoo shop. And for the six weeks prior to my appointment, I checked in diligently with the artist who was going to be designing my tattoo to see if the drawing that he had promised me was ready. And each week, he kind of blew me off. He'd say he'd been really busy that week, and he'd get to it the next week. And that happened over and over again. In retrospect, I think maybe he just was bored by my design, that it wasn't an interesting or a challenging job for him, and he just wasn't into it. But he had come highly recommended by a friend, so I stuck with him. Finally, the day of the appointment arrived, and I still hadn't seen a drawing. I got there, and he took one look at me and was like, oh, um, hang on a second. And he disappears into the back somewhere. And like five minutes later, he comes back out with this piece of paper that he shows me that has a clip art picture on it and some text that I would describe as being in like a Microsoft Word scripty sort of font. And I didn't love it. So I asked him if he could make a few changes to the design. And he basically told me with the air of someone who was being incredibly inconvenienced that it was too late. If I wanted to get a tattoo that day, it was too late to make changes. I had waited six weeks for this appointment and I was leaving Montana in two more weeks. And I just felt this pressure, like it was now or never. I remember it was a warm day and I can still feel my legs sticking to the back of the vinyl chair. The air was thick with this metallic buzzing and a tall, heavily inked, somewhat annoyed man towered over me and asked, ready? Uh, yeah, yeah, ready. I said that even though I didn't feel ready or good about this at all. The second the needle touched my skin, I knew. I knew this wasn't what I wanted for my body in this moment. I knew I was abandoning my intuition, my inner knowing, myself. And I said yes, anyway. There have been other times in my life at 19 years old and at six where I have also felt intimidated and powerless and where a man did things to my body that I did not want. And at 24, no one was forcing me to get this tattoo. I was choosing this. I had power in this situation and I gave it away. I stayed frozen 
and silent again. The hummingbird didn't come out as soft and elegant as I was hoping it would. It's kind of rough and angry looking and it's positioned in this sort of aggressive way, like it's ready to dive bomb something at any moment. And then there's the line from a Mary Oliver poem. There's only one question, how to love this world in that Microsoft Word font. And it's actually in a really bad place for a tattoo. So over time, the words have faded in such a way that now it just reads one question. But what it looks like is not the real reason that I have tried to hide my tattoo and felt so much shame when someone notices it. It's that it is a visual reminder, a literal physical manifestation of psychological scars. Ones that I didn't ask for, that I have profoundly disliked about myself for a long time. And that like my tattoo, I have tried hard to avoid looking at. The thing is though, in this socially distanced pandemic time we're all living through right now, I've had, I've been spending quite a bit more time alone more than usual and with my own thoughts. And as a result, I've been doing a bit of reflection and in this time, I've realized something. After nine years and one really great therapist, the question has finally become not, will I look at these scars? But how? I can continue to look at them with hatred and disgust and shame. Or I can choose to look at them in a different way with some compassion for myself. I can't change the experience that I had of getting this tattoo or of any of the experiences that it reminds me of. But what I can do is take small steps to reclaim them. So recently, I decided to make another appointment at a different local tattoo shop to meet with an artist to discuss an idea uh, I've been thinking about for a while. This artist, who I researched thoroughly beforehand this time, was kind and generous with her time and she asked thoughtful questions as I explained the design that I was picturing in my head. Fireweed has a somewhat unappealing name, but it has become one of my favorite wildflowers in my time as a Montanan. And even more importantly, fireweed gets its name from its ability to grow in burned areas areas that have been traumatized by wildfire. It is actually the first flower to bloom to reclaim a landscape after a fire scars it. And in a few more weeks, fireweed will bloom from one of my scars too. A reminder that something beautiful can reclaim and transform even a place of terrible destruction. And maybe also an answer to that one question of my original tattoo, how to love this world. 
like this, including the devastation and the beauty and the uncertainty, the grief, the joy, and everything in between. And including me, too. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Jen Serta is originally from New York, but accidentally began a love affair with Montana in 2009. She is grateful to have called Missoula home now for the past decade. Jen earned her MSW from the University of Montana in 2016 and currently works as a school-based therapist at Hellgate Elementary School. When not at work, Jen can most often be found hiking with her dogs, listening to podcasts, and running late for something. Coming up, Travis Doria explores three relationships of his that have a similar pattern. First, though, I want to remind you to mark your calendars for Missoula Gives, Missoula's 26-hour annual giving event on May 6th and 7th. Each year, nonprofits across Missoula raise funds for special projects, expanded programming, and sometimes just to keep the lights on through Missoula Gives. This year is especially important as local nonprofits work to bounce back after a year of COVID-19 challenges. Stay tuned to the Tell Us Something newsletter and social media channels for more information on this as Giving Day approaches. We look forward to your support this May 6th and 7th during Missoula Gives. Hey, I'm Mark Moss. It's the Tell Us Something podcast. Travis Doria shares his story of three different relationships that left him feeling betrayed, which, with the benefit of time, he was able to forgive and see the humanity in each of these folks who meant a great deal to him at one time. Sensitive listeners, be aware that Travis's story mentions drug use and suicide. Travis calls his story gone. What the hell do you mean they fired Steve? So I just heard that one of my close coworkers uh, was fired, to my knowledge, without cause. And so I'm pretty fired up. I, I, I work over at the state crime lab here in Missoula. And someone I see every day who's, you know, a father, a close friend, was just fired. And for no reason, uh, from my perspective. So what I did was I walked down to the office of someone who knew. And I uh, knocked down their door, basically, and was like, what the hell? what happened? And she told me, she said, look, you really, we all thought Steve was a good guy. Steve was not a good guy. Over the next couple days and weeks, I learned that our evidence technician, uh, Steve, had been uh, siphoning off drugs for a while uh, to satisfy a personal addiction to opiates he had. Now, this affected me directly. I'm a drug chemist. And my, so my job at the lab is to test white powders that police officers collect and to let them know whether or not it's cocaine or baking soda. So given the fact that Steve was taking off the top of drugs that he was addicted to, definitely affected a few dozen of the cases that were directly related to me and my section. Um, as a person of science, you have to work within a certain level of ethics, and we hold a high quality standard to ensure that every case that we analyze, um, uh, the right result is found. And so for him to have done this to several dozen cases was very offensive. And frankly, he lied to everybody who he worked with day in and day out. Um, personally, I'd always had issues of trying to associate with coworkers and being friendly with. I was still a relatively young analyst at the lab. Um, so to lose Steve was hard for me, but I, you know, I tried my best and uh, realized that that's not a way to live at the lab and, you know, uh, be in a place for 40 hours a week. So whenever uh our female heavy section got a second male besides me. Uh, his name was Derek uh, in the section. I thought I would make an effort. Um, Derek was a bright young go-getting and um, well, went through the drug training just as the rest of us did. Um, he was also someone I had come become accustomed to uh, going on runs with or going mountain biking with uh, outside of work. Uh, it was a lot for me to reach out in that way and uh, we developed a friendship. I thought I'd really realize that 
whenever we would, I remember one time sitting with him at the uh, dingy bar at Bayern and, you know, talking about our mar uh, different marital problems and going back and forth on those stories and really thinking you're connecting to someone. About two years after we heard about uh, Steve siphoning off drugs, uh, we got a, got word that Derek had been doing the same. He'd been taking methamphetamine from samples uh, from cases at the crime lab as well. This came as a blow to everybody, just we did not see it coming. Um, and one of the hardest things as someone who is close to him and worked with him every day, uh, a lot of people asked me, how did you not see that? How did you not know someone was working with you as high on methamphetamine? You try to think the best of people, you do. But looking back, you know, you, you can always look back on a situation and uh, write a different story. You can see, you know, maybe he wasn't sharing as much as everybody else in the lab was, or maybe uh, those uh, discussions of marital problems we had at Bayern, really paranoid fantasies he was having due to side effects of the drugs. Um, so it was really hard for me to process and frankly keep going because this has happened twice. Um, a coworker of mine put it really well. She quoted a Russian proverb about work is, I don't know what we'll do without you, but we'll figure it out tomorrow. And that was the case in our lab. Um, we survived. We uh, dealt with each individual case as it came, and we've reestablished uh, as a quality section who puts out uh, good casework with a great turnaround time. And I'm very proud of that. The reason I was really more upset and the Derek and Steve incident struck me is because it reminded me of the summer between my junior and senior year of college. Now, I was working a part-time job in a lab, but mostly hanging out with my roommates, friends. I remember this day in particular, I was uh, swimming at a pool with my one buddy and it was college. You literally don't have a care in the world. You don't have that many responsibilities. So afterwards we were, I remember sitting on a long four person couch with our four roommates, probably watching something stupid on TV. And I got a text from a number I didn't know. It said, Travis, I'm so sorry. And so I texted back and I was like, hey, who is this? What's going on? And they said, please just call your mom, call her now. So I got up, I went out on the back porch and I called my mom. My mom didn't know how to tell me, but she said that my father had committed suicide a day and a half before. This literally hit me like a ton of bricks going from a place of uh, sun-kissed bliss to realizing that your entire world's gonna change uh, within a matter of seconds, I didn't know how to handle it. So I, one of the hardest things I had to do is hang up and walk in front of my three roommates and say, I, something happened to my dad, I gotta go home. And they all thought I was joking, but so, Anywho, I got, got in the car and started my three-hour drive home. And it's a time where you think back and you say, should I have known something? Is this something I should have predicted or something I could have done? Um, what I do remember is he was always a dedicated father who was always there for my uh, baseball games. And he would show up to most of my band concerts and uh, be very supportive and uh always loved cooking us pasta and lasagna at home, way too much carbs. Um, and anytime we got back from a long drive, he'd tell us we're home again, home again, jiggity jig. But as I started becoming my own person and got older into my teenage years, um, you think back and realize he was spending a lot more time by himself, watching movies. He didn't have as many friends. He was playing a lot of uh, online chess um, and you know, that's kind of how I left him going off to college. Um, during that drive, you think back and the hard thing is you remember a lot of the negatives, a lot of the worst things that you've ever said to him or times you've ever fought. And that's something you have to deal with. 
So as I pulled into my driveway back in Maryland to talk to my family, I was struck by a grace of luck. Um, anybody who's ever dealt with a loss of an immediate family member, one blessing is that you have a lot of things to do. There's a lot of like scheduling of events and people that are coming in and talking to everybody. Um, one thing I remember specifically is it was really difficult to have to talk to uh, everybody who came out of the woodwork to release their condolences. Um, but well, one person, everyone said, I was obviously very sorry, but one person asked me, so how did he do it? And that's something I still remember and was really hard to not answer and not be angry about. Um, you know, and I kept going on with my life. I finished off my senior year of college and uh, moved to West Virginia, moved eventually here to Missoula. And this is always, this is now a part of my life is that uh, my father uh, died by suicide. It only comes up in casual conversations. It's, you know, something I don't present as a part of myself, but is something that's always there for me. Uh, small things will remind me of it. Um, but yeah, a lot of people have asked me, uh, do you have any regrets? And I think back to all three of the relationships, Steve, Derek, and my dad. And I don't regret things I should have seen, like should I have known that Steve was a little more tired than he should have been? Should I have known that Derek possibly was doing drugs? Or should I have known that my dad was more depressed than he should have been? Um, but I don't really regret not knowing those things. I try to look at it from a form of empathy. Um, hopefully each one of those people got the help that they need and are in a better place for having done what they did. Um, the only regrets I have is for those relationships not to flourish. I, uh, my dad never got to meet my beautiful wife and daughter and uh, see what kind of life I've made my, for myself here in Montana. Um, so what I want to end with is saying that to you all that any relationship that you have, no matter how big or small, if it's a coworker, if it's a family member, or it's even a bare stranger, um, your relationship to them has value and respect that there's people out there that love you and I love you all too. Thank you. Thanks, Travis. Travis Doria has signed an autograph, cried in public, crowd surfed, defecated in his pants while running in Patty Canyon, lost a hot dog eating contest and held a human brain. He currently lives in Missoula with his beautiful wife and their beautiful daughter. Willie Prince is the band director at Corvallis School District. She takes her students on a trip to Silverwood Amusement Park in Idaho, a place with over 70 rides, slides, and shows and attractions, the perfect place for a student to get lost. Listen to how Willie handles the situation in a story that she calls Field Trip of Fears. Okay, so the story that I'm about to tell you guys is every teacher's, well, one of every teacher's worst nightmares. Um, so every year in the spring, I take my eighth grade band to Silverwood as a reward for sticking with band for the last four years. And we participate in the Music in the Parks Festival where we perform at Coeur d'Alene High School. And then we spend the rest of the day in Silverwood going on the rides and having a fun time and just kind of chilling and enjoying the day. And this particular group that I took um, had about 30 students in it. And the low brass section was kind of interesting. So I had two trombone players who weren't really into band. It wasn't really their thing, but they liked to be there and hang out with their friends and, you know, make fart sounds on their instruments in the back of the room. Um, and then I had a bass player who was a pretty good musician and he really held the section together. And I had one other student, uh, Barry sax player. If you don't know what the baritone saxophone is, it's like a three foot tall saxophone. Um, and his name was Tatum. And I just have to show you how Tatum entered the room every day. And he still does this to this day. Hey. <laughs> so every time he'd come into my room, he'd do that little dance. Um, and then he'd be like, what's up? Um, so he was just a really fun, unique person. 
And he was also a very good musician. He worked really hard at band and at being a good uh, player on his instrument. And we got to about two days before we were leaving for Silverwood and the bass player's mom shows up at school and she's like, can I talk to you for a second? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I step out of the room and she's like, well, Hunter's not going to be able to go on the Silverwood trip this year. And I was like, oh, okay. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, there goes half my, my low section, you know, the band's not going to sound the same. And I was like, well, what's up? Can I help with anything? And she was like, well, we just purchased 20 chicks and Hunter was supposed to feed and water them when we were out of town and he didn't and all 20 chicks died. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you 100%. This, this is your call, but yeah, I think that would be a very good punishment for that. And so I was like, you know, okay with that. But then in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, that leaves us with Tatum to hold the band together. And so I went up to Tatum and I was like, Hunter isn't going to be able to go. You're going to have to hold the baseline together. And he was like, uh, okay. You could tell he was like a little bit nervous about it, but I was like, you got this, you know, the music, you're really good. You'll be fine. And he was like, okay. So it comes time to go on the trip. And we head over to Coeur d'Alene High School, and my students don't have a stage at our school, so they've never performed on a stage before. And I, was, I made sure to let them know ahead of time that there would be really bright lights on stage, and they probably wouldn't be able to see me conducting very well. So I told them ahead of time, listen to Tatum. He has the bass line down. He will hold you guys together if you can't see me. And sure enough, we get up on stage and they're all like, oh, we can't see. And I was like, you got this. You guys know what you're doing. Just listen to Tatum. And we pull out Phantom of the Opera. That was our first song that we were playing. And it's pretty hard for eighth graders. It's a medley. And they nailed it. And Tatum held that bass line together and they all listened to him and it came together. And we felt great. And we played our second song. And then we thanked the judges and we headed off to Silverwood. And we got to Silverwood, and the first thing that I told them was make sure when you're going somewhere that you're always with another person. And I gave them my phone number so that if something happened, they could get a hold of me. And then I told them where we would meet at the pavilions at 5.30 for the awards ceremony. And we all walked in, and they uh, – went off and went on the rides and had fun. And I walked around and watched them and they were all having a good time and everything was going really well. And 5.30 came around. And so I went over to the pavilion and I was waiting for them to come. And slowly they started trickling in and it was 5.30 on the dot and I had seen all of them, which was amazing. They all came in, we all got seated at the table and we we're just waiting for the award ceremony to start. Um, we are usually the smallest band to participate in this festival. So we usually don't win any awards or anything. And I had told them that that would probably be the case, that we probably wouldn't win an award, but that it was fun to go and participate and get some feedback. And so we're sitting there and he's going through the announcements and he gets to our section, the middle school class A bands. And he's reading off the list of, people and he gets to first place and he's like Corvallis middle school and we're all like what and then we start cheering and a student goes up and brings back this gigantic plastic trophy and they were so excited and we're like woo because uh, we really didn't expect to win anything and so we sit back down and we're waiting for the rest of it and the overall middle school category comes up and we ended up winning the entire middle school category for all of the groups that were involved in the festival. And we were just in shock at that point. We're like, what? Us? We're the smallest school here. And, and so Ella goes running up and she gets another giant trophy. So we have these two, like two foot tall trophies. And she comes back and she's like, guys, just think of what we could have accomplished if we'd actually practiced. And I was like, that's what I tell you all the time. 
And we were just on cloud nine. So we started to head out of the park and I had two boys come up to me and they were like, can we go get Dippin' Dots? We really want to get Dippin' Dots before we go. And I was like, okay, but you better be back by the entrance in time for us to get to the bus. And they were like, oh yeah, don't worry. And they go trotting off and everybody's just super excited and talking about the trophies. And we get to the entrance and the two boys with their Dippin' Dots come back and we all walk out to the bus in the parking lot. And a lot of them had wet clothes because they'd been going on the water rides all day. And so they're changing in the bathrooms out there and they get all changed and everybody gets back on the bus and we check the bathrooms to make sure they're all clear that everybody's back and it looks good. And so we get back on the bus and I start taking attendance and I'm going down the list of names and everybody's here and I get to the very last name on the list and it's Tatum. And I was like, Tatum, nothing. And I look back at the back of the bus where the low brass are sitting. And I was like, hey, low brass, is Tatum back there? And they just look at me like, huh? No. And then I was like, oh, okay. And I start looking at all the seats, looking for him. And the little flute players up front are starting to realize that something is wrong. And I was like, hey, does, T does anybody have Tatum's phone number? Like, and the little flute player's eyes get big and they're like, I don't think Tatum has a cell phone. And I was like, oh no, oh my God. Like your heart just sinks because you don't know where the student is. And I, I tell the bus driver, keep everybody on the bus. Don't let anybody go off to use the bathroom or anything. And I'm going to go look for him. And I go running back across the parking lot. And if you haven't been to Silverwood, it's this gigantic parking lot. And I'm running and I run under the tunnel that goes under the highway. And I'm pulling out my phone, trying to get to the contact sheet on my phone. And I run up the stairs and through the ticket booth. And I don't even stop to show them the stamp on my hand. I just run in and I'm like fumbling with my phone and I'm thinking, oh my God, am I gonna call his mom first? Am I gonna call my principal first? What do I do? Either option is horrible. Like I, I just lost your child or I think I lost a student. I was panicking, I'm shaking. Everything inside me is just terrified. And I round the corner inside the park and I look down the walkway and there's absolutely nobody left. There's a few Silverwood employees milling around, but every single person who was visiting the park has left the park. And I am in full on panic mode, shaking as I'm trying to get my phone, get my contact sheet on my phone. And I start walking back. I turn and I start walking back towards the entrance and I look up and there is Tatum leaning up against the cement um, garden area and his head was down. So he didn't even see me go running past him. And I was like, Oh my God, Tatum, I was so worried. Where have you been? And he's like, well, I, I was just waiting for you guys. I thought we were going to meet at the entrance. And I was like, everybody's on the bus. I thought I'd left you. And he's like, Oh, well, I went because Ramsey went to go get some Dippin' Dots and then I lost him. And so then I just came back here and I was like, oh, thank God you're okay. Oh my God, thank God you're okay. And we walked back to the bus and we got back on the bus and everybody was fine and the rest of the trip went really well. But this class, they're seniors this year and I still have quite a few of them in my band. And, and they still give Tatum crap about almost being left behind at Silverwood. Thank you. Thanks, Willie. Willie Prince is the band director at Corvallis School District in the heart of the Bitterroot Valley. She and her husband play saxophone duets in their spare time when not playing with their five-year-old daughter, fishing, or enjoying the outdoors. Our final storyteller this week is Reese Jacobson. Reese saves the day by donning a uniform when her little brother's Little League team will have to forfeit the big playoff game because they don't have enough players. Reese calls her story White Grandma Keds. I grew up in a jock home. We were involved in some sort of athletic pursuit 
all year round. This story takes place in the early summer of my eighth grade year. My family and I are at Westside Little League Park here in Missoula, Montana to support and encourage and cheer my brother and his team on in their playoff game. As a playoff game, if they keep winning, they keep playing. If they lose, they're out and the season is over. And this is my brother's last year in Little League. So this could potentially be his last Little League game. So it was a pretty big deal. As I walk from the parking lot to the stands, all the players are on the field warming up, throwing the ball back and forth, chatting amongst themselves. I walk behind the first base dugout and I see three blue uniforms standing at the chain link fence with their hands clasped in front of them, looking at me, begging, please, please, will you play with us? Player number nine isn't here yet. He's, he's late getting back from his camping trip and if you don't play with us, we have to forfeit and then we're done. I looked at them a little bit dumbfounded and then I looked at my feet, sandals, shorts, and a t-shirt. I had not brought my bag because it wasn't a practice day for me, nor was it a game day. So I didn't have a mitt and definitely had nothing resembling cleats. I was about to say no, and then I caught my brother's eye. And I knew that this was a big deal. So I reluctantly grabbed the plastic grocery bag they offered me, in which I found a, an extra uniform from another player who had gone on summer vacation early. I ran to the scorekeeper's booth behind home plate and I snuggled underneath the big cutout window in the front and the big cutout door in the back to try to find some semblance of privacy as I slipped into this uniform. This uniform was designed for a seventh grade boy who was several inches shorter than me, several pounds lighter than me, and definitely less curvy than me. So to say it was a tight feet, uh, squeeze was an understatement. Baseball pants are designed so that you've got a good bit of calf and sock showing. Well, because these pants were so short, there was a whole bunch of calf showing and the uniform did not get returned with any socks. So I had my whole bare naked calf showing and I still had no shoes. As I walked past the stands, my grandma says to me, oh honey, you can borrow my sneakers. <laughs> sneakers, she called them. My grandma's sneakers were white Keds. She even let me borrow her ankle socks. Now this was the, in the days when ankle socks were ankle socks. There were no, no such thing as no show socks. So I had a good inch of white sock coming up to my ankle and I slipped my feet into my white grandma heads. I grabbed a mitt that I found in the dugout and I trotted myself self, very self-consciously out to center field, wishing the whole time the earth would swallow me whole. As I got out to center field, the game started. My brother was pitching that day and I was pretty confident no balls were gonna get hit out of the infield. Nevertheless, as he went into his windup, I started praying, please strike him out, strike him out, strike him out. Don't let him hit the ball. Don't let him hit the ball. Don't let him hit the ball. Fortunately, first inning, three up, three down. I trot myself back to the dugout, hoping and expecting to see player number nine, only to, to not see him yet arrive. I was pretty confident batting in number nine spot that this inning, I would not have to hit. hit. So I found the biggest, bulkiest 
jacket I could find, and I buried my three sizes too small uniform, my bare naked calves, and my white grandma heads inside that jacket, and I hunkered down on the end of the bench in the dugout. End of the inning, we're back on the field. Player number nine has still not arrived. So I motor myself back out to center field in my three sizes too small uniform, my bare naked calves, and my white grandma heads. As my brother goes into his windup again, I start praying, strike him out, strike him out, strike him out. First batter up, strike out. Next batter up, ping, a high fly ball. I see come sailing into left center field. And out of the corner of my eye, I can see the left fielder darting as fast as he can over to the ball. And I know that I need to do something. So I jog as, as quickly and, and um, as purposefully as I can over behind left fielder to try to back him up just in case. Because if he trips and hits his head on the ball and fails to make the play, I have to do something. Which at this point, I'm imagining, you know the scene from Sandlot where Smalls tries to throw the ball and when he throws it, it like lands two feet in front of him and his life is over. I'm imagining that humiliation when I try to throw this baseball. Now throwing a softball, no problem, but a baseball is a little bit different animal. And so I was just dreading the absolute humiliation of the ball landing two feet in front of me. Fortunately, left field makes the play to the cutoff player or the runner stops on second base. With adrenaline coursing through my veins again, I'm back in center field, hoping and praying for another strikeout. Next batter up, strikeout. Next batter, grounds out to first base and the inning is over. We head back into the dugout and all I can think of is getting back into that big jacket and hoping that player number nine has finally arrived. He's not here. And I know I'm going to have to bat this inning. Batter eight is up on the, at the plate, which means I am on deck. I grab a baseball bat. I get myself into the on-deck circle, and I start warming up a little bit, limbering up my limbs. And I'm doing a, a, some swings, trying to, trying to uh, time the pitch. And I hear behind me some snickering at the gate or at the fence. And I look behind me and there are two guys from a totally different baseball team who have come to watch this playoff game. And they finally realize it's a girl out there. Batter number eight gets on base. So I'm up. I walk as nonchalantly and as confidently as I can in a three sizes too small uniform, bare naked calves and white grandma calves to the plate. As I walk behind the umpire, I can hear the opposing catcher audibly giggling and laughing, which at this point is a really bad idea. I have the baseball bat and all I wanna do is hit the guy in the head. I ignore my instinct and I look down to third base to get my sign. Like, what am I gonna do with a sign anyways? I don't know what any of this means. But I'm playing the part, I look down, get my sign, give my nod, do a couple more check swings, and I settle my three sizes too small uniform, my bare naked calves, and my white grandma heads into the soft soil, six inches to the left of home plate and I ease into my stance, and I stare down the pitcher. At this point, the, a line from Field of Dreams pops into my head. Hey kid, don't wink at the pitcher. And all I wanna do is wink at the pitcher, because at this point, my strategy is to get hit by the ball so I can be out of this game, and this nightmare could be over and I could put my own clothes back on. He doesn't. Quack. 
Ball one, high. Whack. Ball two, high. Whack. Ball three, high. Whack. Ball four, high. By now, the crowd is cheering. Yeah, good eye, good eye. Which is kind of strange because I have no other strategy besides getting hit by the ball. But I get to take my base. As I toss my bat into the on-deck circle and head down first base in my white grandma heads, I tag the base and I realize, crap. Now I have to run bases. In baseball, I can lead off. In softball, I've never let off in my life. So I really have no idea what I'm doing, except I'm trying to play the part. So I look at the pitcher, trying to watch his weight, if he's going to go towards home or come towards me in for, at first. So as he goes into his windup, I inch myself off the base. And then I start wiggling my fingers because every good base runner wiggles his fingers. As I take my inches worth of lead out towards second base, the pitcher heads towards home. Ping! A high fly ball between right and center field. As I see the ball hit the grass, I take off for second base, motoring my white grandma heads as fast as I can go. As I tag second base, I look up and I see the third base coach giving the whoa, go, go, go sign. And the lead runner is tagging third and rounding, heading for home. So I start motoring towards third base. About halfway to third base, I look up to see the lead runner standing on third base. I hit the brakes and head as fast as I can back to second base, where I see the batter is now caught in a pickle between first and second base, back and forth, back and forth. And I stand relieved on second base as that batter is tagged out and sent back to the dugout. I'm relieved because I wasn't the one who got tagged out, but I'm very confident it was my base running error that caused that out. Next batter up, I'm on second now. I'm uh, taking a little bit more risk because I'm definitely not a threat over here on second base. And I extend my lead to about two feet off the base now. And I start wiggling my fingers again, waiting for the pitch. Ping! Line drive between first and second base. I see the ball hit the ground and I take off as fast as I can towards third base. I hit the bag and I see the coach giving the go, go, go sign. So I run towards home base as fast as my three sizes, two small uniform, bare naked calves and white grandma kids are gonna take me. As I step my foot firmly in the middle of home plate, the crowd goes wild. Yeah, she scored, she scored, woo! They're screaming and hollering. And all I can think about is getting back to the dugout and the oversized jacket waiting for me. I give a sheepish little smile to the crowd and jog myself into the dugout and the safety of that jacket, where another surprise awaits me. Player number nine has arrived. And that's when I officially retire from baseball and hang up my cleats, or in this case, my white grandma kids. Thank you. Thanks, Reese. Reese Jacobson teaches fifth grade at Target Range in Missoula. She spends her non-working hours with her husband, their two boys, and their dog. She loves playing in the water, hiking in the mountains, and catching fish. Tune in next week when I check in with Miss Montana, Anna Hasland. You know, with this coronavirus that's happening, it's been really hard for deaf and hard of hearing people to be able to communicate because of the mask requirement. It covers most of your face. So what's been really cool is that there's these masks with a clear window. Anna is deaf, and Bonnie Curian interprets for her in this podcast, which will also be available on YouTube. Tune in for that conversation on the next Tell Us Something podcast. If you want to support what we do, tell someone about the show. Recommend Tell Us Something to just two people who have never listened to it. 
please rate and review this podcast on your podcast app. It really helps. Also, remember to mark your calendar for Missoula Gives on May 6th and 7th. If you ever want to drop me a line, write to mark at tellussomething.org. That's mark, M-A-R-C, at tellussomething.org. Thanks again to our title sponsor, The Good Food Store. Learn more at goodfoodstore.com. Thanks to our enduring sponsors, cabinetparts.com, Blackfoot Communications, where you can find them at blackfoot.com. Thanks to our champion sponsor, True Food Missoula. Have a look at the menu and order online at truefoodcsa.com. Joyce of Tile, a woman-owned business serving the greater Missoula area. Specializing in interior finish work, if you have a tile project, consider Joyce. Learn more at joyceoftile.com. Thanks to Cash for Junkers, who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashforjunkersband.com. Thank you to our in-kind sponsors, Logjam Presents. Check them out at logjampresents.com. Missoula Broadcasting Company. Learn more at missoulabroadcasting.com. Float Missoula. Learn more at floatmsla.com. Geckodesigns.com. Missoulaevents.net. Makers of Cheddarboard. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. To learn more about Telesomething, please visit telesomething.org. Stay safe, wear a mask, get vaccinated, take care of yourself, and take care of each other.